0: Hi, this is Andrew and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everyone, a happy not August, that's a major mistake, April 14th, 2021, it's getting warm. Spring is here, although given our environmental crisis, perhaps we can't quite see the spring at the moment. Um, this spring, the sexiest thing out there, I think, is uh, a word that is being called infrastructure. Everyone's claiming a bit of infrastructure here. Uh, Biden's infrastructure plan for 2.3 or 2.9 trillion, whatever it is, is being met with Republican skepticism. Republicans, of course, are always skeptical about anything that doesn't uh, come from them. Uh, And Congress now is gearing up to work on Biden's infrastructure plan. Everyone is claiming that their little thing is infrastructure. The plan apparently calls for cities to limit single family zoning and to build affordable housing. Some people are arguing that domestic labor should become infrastructure. Uh, My guest on the show today had a New York Times piece yesterday uh, with a headline, you don't see the headline, they changed it, but the original headline was we need an infrastructure package for nature. And it was an argument suggesting, and I am quoting it here, uh, it's a wonderful piece in the Times, the thing is nature has its own infrastructure. What nature needs is for us to get out of its way and let its systems function in the manner that billions of years of evolution enabled it to do. We need a different kind of infrastructure entirely, one that accommodates the natural world and puts the long-term needs of ecosystems before the knee-jerk urges of all of us so eager to get back to life as we knew it. One of the authors of that excellent, provocative piece... Uh, in the Times, is my guest today. Uh, His name is Paul Greenberg. Paul is the co-author of that wonderful New York Times piece on uh, making infrastructure nature, and is also the author of a really interesting new book, uh, The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. Paul, let's start uh, with this idea of nature as infrastructure. Was that a, a, a metaphorical argument or do you think that it's a literal one? I think
1: as I wrote, nature has its own infrastructure. And I think what we've largely done is broken apart a natural system that is naturally inter- interconnected. Um, whether it be the integrity of a forest that allows creatures to migrate over great distances, whether it be a river Um, that connects upland territory to the sea, we've ecosystem after ecosystem inserted ourselves into the dialogue nature has with itself. So in the case of a river, it's a dam. In the case of a forest, it can be a road. Um, And I guess uh, what we're dealing with is a very fragmented natural world right now. We do actually have the know-how and the science and the knowledge and the technology to piece those pieces back together and um, I guess you know it's it gives a lot of environmentalists like me chills when you hear about two trillion dollars for infrastructure I guess what we're chills, about it's a
0: good or a bad chill Paul are you suggesting that it makes you excited <laughs> that you get your hands on it's some big, of this money or does it disappoint you because the money is going in the wrong direction
1: well, we don't know yet. It's 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 a chill. It's good that you point out. It's a double. It's a big chill. Whatever it is, um, it 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 sends shivers down my spine in a good way. In the sense that I love the idea of changing our uh, power system over from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, it's a, a chilly chill um, and a bad chill when I think about you know just another layer of concrete and glass and steel thrown up over the natural world. I mean, I'll give you a key example. Um, up uh, in the Adirondacks, a place where I like to spend a fair amount of time, um, there are instances where they're literally cutting down forests to put in solar fields, which is really absurd when you think about it. Why cut down a natural carbon sink uh, to replace it with something that's just going to generate stuff for humans, but but do nothing for nature?
0: So, Paul, your new book, um, The Climate Diet, 50 Ways to Trim Your Carbon, uh, it, it doesn't suggest that we should eliminate our carbon footprint. Um, it introduces the idea of the diet, which is a very familiar one with Americans who always <laughs> seem to want to be losing their, want to be losing weight. You know, you warn at the beginning that most diets end in failure, um, uh, but we have to do something. Why, why do you use this, this, this image of the diet uh, to, to, to save the environment?
1: I think I wanted to approach um, the climate crisis from a linguistical point of view that a lot of Americans can understand. Um, I think there's a lot of preaching to the choir that goes on with climate is that,
0: change. Is, is, is that um, a polite way of saying that Americans need simple language to understand complicated problems?
1: well as somebody from clearly overseas i think you would probably agree with me in that respect yes we do need simple language and it's not just that i think we actually frankly we're obese when it comes to climate and we're obese when it comes to diets and so the parallel is right there and they're actually linked um
0: you know, yeah they are, are certainly like, linked and i've um we will we'll save that bit for later I even yeah have a little joke you and and you say still some diets do work and these successful diets tend to be modest in their goals, incorporating small changes over long periods of time. So your your book, the Climate Diet, suggests that we need to be realistic. We can't imagine that we're going to save everything overnight, and we need to take small steps. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, and I think you know when I imagined this book, um, I imagined um, I don't know if you have kids, but you know, there's a moment when you know a young person goes to college. Um, they they get the gospel of climate change or environment in their in their in their head, and they come back and they first thing they do is they scream at their parents, you know, to change everything and so forth and so on. And it usually ends in an embittered sort of departure from one another. What I am suggesting is that you, is that okay. you're faithful. Um, it's happened more with, as me as a child when I came back and yelled at my own parents. Um, my right. son hasn't gone to college yet, so we're still waiting for that moment. Um, but um, when you uh you know, come home from like hearing that veganism is the best thing planet eating wise. And I don't deny that it is, um, you know, you're not gonna get grandparents um in Topeka to go vegan. However, as I suggest in the book, a switch from beef to chicken actually will cut their carbon footprint, at least what they're doing from meat, they'll cut it by about 75%. So I'd rather have a huge swath of the American heartland switch from beef to chicken than just getting a few of them, you know, switching over to, uh, you know, Impossible Burgers. So I think that's, you know, the kind of incremental things that I'm trying to encourage. And I'm trying to encourage, you know, everyone says this is an all hands on deck moment. And surveys say that 75% of Americans, whether Republicans or Democrats, feel that climate action is necessary and yet very often on the Republican side they don't take the action so here's an invitation if you want to take the action these are actions that you can take without you know necessarily getting stigmatized by your, by your community that you've become some sort of like impossible burger vegan lunatic
0: impossible burger don't don't encourage me Paul to pr- mispronounce your name again or miss' next time I'll call you <laughs> Paul impossible burger. Um, just Greenberger. It's so you talk about America and the challenge of making some Americans aware, in simple language, of complicated problems. But you do point out in the book very clearly that America is the biggest problem when it comes to the destruction uh, of of the environment. Um, In this chart, for those people watching, you can see that the USA is way ahead of Germany, Japan, China, Italy, the UK, France, Brazil, India, uh, in terms of the emissions um, per capita. Uh, What's gone, in all seriousness, Paul, what's gone wrong here? Why are the Americans so responsible? Is it because they have the most advanced economies, or is it because they're just simply lazy and uncaring?
1: You know, what's not in that chart, so that's the top... Um, 10 economies in the world comparing one another against each other, you know, sheer economic output and per capita. What's interesting, though, is that the other countries that are up around our level, which aren't on the chart because their economies aren't as large, are Canada and Australia. And I think it has... So they're not on that chart that you're showing right now because their economies aren't as large and they don't have as overall large impact, but per capita, they are as destructive. And I think there's something about a colonial economy that um, makes it more aggressive when it comes to using up uh, resources and being more wasteful. And when you look at Canada, you look at Australia, you look at the United States, these are all Anglo-Saxon settled places where the perception is that the door is wide open, that there's a frontier out there somewhere that we can continue to expand. And I think that psychology pervades both how we behave individually and how we behave as governments. Does that make sense?
0: I think it does. And I think your, your your argument and your prescription is very American. We, it, in, in contrast with some of the Europeans, I had a couple of French authors on the show um, uh, last year, late last year. Thomas LaRue, the co-author of The Contamination of the Earth, who argues that between 1973 and 2020, we've been charging headlong into the crisis. And uh, even more interesting, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the uh, Paris-based uh, Uh, geographer Lucas Chancel, he has a new book out called Unsustainable Inequalities, Social Justice and the Environment, and his uh, to-do list is very much political. You take a much more, um, I wouldn't say minimalist, but um, granular attitude and a more personal attitude. You're not looking to government, at least in this book. You're looking to individuals, aren't you? I mean, there is a
1: section at the end of the book called Fighting and Winning, which is you know, prescriptive about what you can do when you interact with your government. But I guess what the book was confronting, and I don't know if you've experienced this phenomenon, but I find a lot of times when people want to talk about climate change, um, the dialogue has actually shifted from the individual, and people are saying, "Oh, it's such a huge problem that the individual action doesn't matter anymore, and really, what we need to do is change governments." And like the previous authors you're citing, you know, we have to address inequality, blah, 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 blah. But most of the time, I think where that leaves the individual is nowhere, right? Because you know, you think, "Yeah, I, for any, I kind of fight inequality. I want to fight this. I want to fight that." But do you actually do it? I mean, really. So I guess what I'm saying is there needs to be both personal action and government action. But I do believe that engagement in political action starts with the personal. You have to live a carbon conscious life on a daily basis to be consciously and, and co- continuously in touch with the crisis before you. So rather than you know just saying, don't do anything except sign this petition, I would, I'm saying people should do something, but they start with their personal life, and then they can get engaged with the political as you know, as they start to understand the problem from a very interior place.
0: Yeah, I like that part of the argument, and and, and um, you, you have this this uh, idea, which is I think really quite compelling. You say make your life your argument, and the book is an attempt to suggest that we can live a good green life. Without sacrificing everything, is that fair, Paul? I think it is fair,
1: and you know, you know. To go back to this question of inequality, um, I think what drives, particularly Americans, is you know we are a a species that is all built around status, right? And status, to this point, has meant um, acquiring as much as possible and showing those of lower status that you have more. Um, critical in the culture that underlies climate change is changing this notion of status. And I would much rather people sort of show off their status by showing, not in a smug way, but to show how small they're living and how in sync with the planet they're they're living. Now it's a fine line between going over into what I've come to think of as the smugosphere and and you know, oh look at my electric vehicle. Oh look I'm not throwing out anything. I'm just recycling it all. That that, that you know that that's very off putting. It's very off putting you know to the middle of this country and It's that, annoying, uh, yeah. I mean it's it's a classic it's,
0: case it's, of a sort of aristocratic, liberal, coastal elite yeah. sort of uh uh, articulating their own moral superiority over everyone else and their Teslas and their vegan lifestyles.
1: Exactly. But think about it. You know, you're in San Francisco. I'm sure you come across your share of Buddhists, right? And, you know, they're, <laughs> think about, think about. They're everywhere, they're
0: right? I can't go out. They're everywhere. We actually, eat the- poor. we eat them out here. Don't tell anyone. Okay. You know, they're they're yes. on every, uh, every non vegan <laughs> uh, menu. It's it's
1: reminding me of that Monty Python sketch where the communists are everywhere, oh, that's cruel, and, and Brezhnev is in my wife's jam. <laughs> but no, but a lot of Buddhists out there, a lot of Buddhists here, but, you know, like know, a lot of Buddhists, I meditate and da, da da but, you know, the difference... Not that we're against somebody, Buddhists, are we, Paul? No, 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 I'm pro-Buddhist. But there's a big difference between, you ever come across a, a real serious, mindful person who meditates for you know, and brings himself to a a place of peace of mind. And it's very infectious. Like, oh, my God, how can I get some of that stuff? And then there's the Buddhist who's like, oh, yes, you know, I was at a lecture of uh, Trump the other day. You know, he's the fifth um, avatar of the sixth descendant of the 12th patriarch. And, oh, really, um, you can't really understand him unless you've read all of uh, God and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like those people are not enlightened, right? So I guess, you know, it's a humbleness that we need to approach this problem with. I mean, we really... We've really messed up. up.
0: um, As your co-author told me when he was on the uh, show, I know you're part of uh, Carl Safina's uh, Institute, and he uh, co-wrote the New York Times piece, Why Humility is Essential in the Face of Nature. So you're on the same humble page as Carl Safina, right? Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And also, you know, I don't know about you, but, like, I find workarounds, low carbon workarounds like kind of fun. And um this is sort of a prop, but it's sort of not. I actually was making bread as we uh, as <laughs> when your call came in. So I actually do need to do a little bit of folding. But like I like making my own bread. I like I like when I bake my own bread that um I use the heat from the the rest of my meal. Um, I love trying to figure out these puzzles. And to I'd much rather be clever with my mind trying to come up with the lowest carbon lifestyle possible um, than just throw money at it and buy a Tesla. Right. Well, I've, I've
0: out carboned or out uh, Buddhist you, Paul. Uh, I read the book and one of the things you underline is that food is very important in how we eat in terms of uh, a good yeah. diet. Of course, the diet is, is, is double diet when it comes to food and the environment. And you suggest the best food is my lunch today, a carrot. <laughs> if we all <laughs> yes, start yes, eating yes. carrots, uh, I won't <laughs> actually munch it on the show, but if we all start eating carrots, Paul, is that is that going to save the environment? Is food central? I was really intrigued with that section of the book, actually. I found it very um, enlightening.
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, food choices, there's huge differences in the diet that you choose. Um, the carrot that you raise um, or the point you the <laughs> is that um you know this again, carrot didn't expect
0: to become a, a, a <laughs> i <meekist. laughs>
1: i'm ready for my close-up now says the carrot um but you know i tried to have this book be fun too because again there's a lot of lecturing that goes on um with the carrot the reason i threw that out there is i asked you know this book is not me speaking all the time most of the time it's just i asked experts out there if i want to do the very best thing what would i do and so people who do what are called life cycle analyses um i asked them what's the thing what's where do you get the most nutrition bang for the least carbon emissions buck and people circle around carrots um so carrots excellent meal choice um after that actually a really super um high nutrient carbon choice it's anchovies yes it's yeah, no, another a, of my I'm with... so i was
0: very disappointed to learn that prawns or shrimps are very bad for the environment and one of my favorite foods so I'm not sorry buy sorry.
1: Food. sorry yeah no the prawns are a double dipper because they're pretty um to farm them it's pretty carbon intensive for the feed but right. on a, on addition when you uh, dig mangrove, uh, ponds and mangrove forests, you cut down mangrove trees and mangroves are four times more carbon efficient are four times more efficient at sequestering carbon than tropical rainforests.
0: So oh, uh, stay before we get to, I, I do want to get to the, the, the granular part of the book. Um, yeah, sure. But I, I did like your point about um, our attitude you, and you do lay this out. I think in, again, in a convincing way, you argue, don't shame and don't blame the poor and the powerless. And I think those are both really important messages in a book about uh, uh, trimming our carbon footprint. Why do you think we are, or some of us at least, in the, in the green movement, why do we blame the, the, the poor and the powerless?
1: Well, I think, unfortunately, the climate movement has settled in a kind of middle to upper middle class space where a lot of people um, have job security, um, and a lot of the extractive indur- industries that you know unfortunately result in a lot of um, emissions employ blue collar blue collar people who don't have a, any other choice a lot of times. So you know, oftentimes we're blaming people for saying, "Oh, you know, you you just want to keep working in the coal industry and in the oil industry, and you don't care." Uh, about the environment or, you know, similarly, you know, don't, you know, maybe there's some NIMBY issues around a solar field or a wind farm or things like that. But the thing is, is that the poor and powerless, you know, they're the ones who are actually feeling the strongest effects of the climate crisis right now. They're the ones who are getting flooded out like in the Ninth Ward. Um, when Hurricane Katrina got hit hit us, um, they're the ones who were where coal and, and gas plants are being cited most of the time. And we and had uh, we that
0: message actually on the show last year. Mario Ariza from uh, who wrote a wonderful book about the, the the coming crisis or the current crisis in Miami writes about that. Let's get into some granular details of this diet. Um, Let's do it. All. Um, You said something about eating and drinking, Uh, making families, you suggest perhaps slightly tongue-in-cheek that we shouldn't have kids or that we should have fewer kids. Say something about that.
1: Well, I'll tell you, when this book first started percolating, I spoke with Elizabeth Colbert about it and I know her a little bit just from other work and I said, you know, what would be your suggestion? And she's like, well, to tell you the truth, if I was going to do anything, I'd tell people to not have children, but I feel like I can't do that because I have two children. Um, and you know, I would didn't want to be a hypocrite on that. Um, I felt it had to be mentioned. When you look at any, when you talk to any expert on this field, um, it's very clear that if an American is producing sixteen tons of emissions, you know, per year, to the emissions. So I suggest a few ways around this. Um, you know, having one child, for example is not a terrible thing to do it's um you know it's it's below replacement value um over time so we would actually be shrinking our population but it also suggests that you know there are different ways to get your jones from parenting like there um i have a um two couples one two women and one two men who are you know couples with each other and their friends all four of them and they're raising two children amongst the four of them and it's kind of a great deal when you think about it because I don't know, if you, know imagine if you have kids, but like, it's you know, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of distraction.
0: Yeah, and, I feel I know. It. Yeah. and uh, know, yes, of money, money and a lot of um, a lot of aggravation. So if yeah. at, I buy that. Let's go on to some other um, suggestions. Uh, What's that? That's actually Aaron Brokovich's top twelve actions. But let's yeah. let's go back to your uh, your list. Yeah. Um, You suggest that we should stay home more and when we leave home, um, we should be really careful about what kind of vehicles we drive and whether or not we fly. I have to admit that in spite of my great pride in eating carrots, I'm really guilty when it comes to flying. And I think reading books like yours made me recognize that I do have to change my lifestyle. COVID has helped with that, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I think we're all at this funny pivot point, because me too, I mean, frankly, before I wrote this book, I mean, I am always getting invited to speaking gigs and going to conferences, blah, blah, blah. I haven't been on an airplane in over a year. Uh, Frankly, I have not missed it. And now as things are starting to open up, knock on wood, um, there's a decision before me. Right. And, you know, I am actually considering uh, I do have a conference that I was invited to in November. I'm thinking, thinking maybe I'll attend it virtually. Um, I'm trying to think about ways that, you know, instead of taking a plane, maybe traveling by train if possible. Um, I did a piece, um, in food and wine this month, um, called my European staycation, where I rented a barge on the Erie canal and pretended like I was in France. And it was kind of good. Like there's a wine growing region, um, you know, (laughs) there's all sorts, all sorts of foods experiences that you could have. So I think that again, going back to this question, this problem of status, We've perceived status as being able to take off on a European vacation and then bragging about it. Well, what if the status is about staying home and making really great vacations nearby in a way that? I'm a good
0: one. I, the Eric Canal has always reminded me of France. Um.
1: <laughs> well, there, you know, there is a wine growing region. You know, as I said no. in the article, there's a very good vineyard uh, that I visited, which had excellent Cabernet Francs, Sauvignons, and wine slushies. So in France, I defy you to find a winery where you. Wow, well, we
0: could certainly we, we could certainly imagine San Francisco as Nepal with all these um, Buddhists running. <laughs> um, energy is very important, Paul. Again, in all seriousness, when it comes to uh, staying home, you have all sorts of uh, charts in your book about U.S. household energy use. You suggest we need to turn off lights. We use we need to do recycling. We need to be much more careful in how much. We waste energy, particularly with our new digital toys. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, standby power, often called vampire power, actually accounts for something. I think, you know, 2% of energy use in the home. So just right away shutting down all your stuff when you go to bed at night is a really good thing to do. It's also good for your mind. I wrote another book recently called Goodbye Phone, Hello World. Um, It's all about quitting your phone, which I did. Um, And, you know, the fact of all your devices being ready to welcome you and distract you is both bad for your mind and it's bad for the environment. So that's that's one to really pay attention to. Um, You know, the other thing that really caught my eye was I spoke to a lot of people about the importance of turning the home over into a gas-powered home to a smart electric home. Um, That is, you can actually change your utility so that you're getting renewable electricity into your home, but then switching over your appliances so that you're not using a gas stove anymore, so that you're not using a gas dryer or a gas water heater, gradually trying to get renewable electricity into the home. That, to me, struck me as a real game changer. It mostly came from the Natural Resources Defense Council, but a lot of people sort of back up that idea.
0: Yeah, I was intrigued, Paul. Uh, We had uh, Erin Brockovich, I'm I'm sure you know her work on the show recently, talking about the water crisis. I put her 12 actions up, which in some ways are quite similar to yours. But it's funny, uh, her book, which is Superman Isn't Coming, um, quotes Dr. Seuss's Lorax. Unless someone like you cares an awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And you suggest that the Lorax is not really a helpful guide for, 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 for climate activism. What's wrong with the Lorax, Paul?
1: <laughs> well, the Lorax is, you know, he's always been an inspiration to me. Um, you know, one of the things I always teed off on a Lorax is, do um, you remember the, the Thneed? in the Lorax, do you remember, it's like they cut the, the the once all come to the Truffula trees, these beautiful forests, and they cut them down to make this thing called a thneed, which is this useless garment that you can't even imagine how you would put it on. It was funny because, you know, as you've seen with COVID, um, the purpose of in person retail commuting and all those things start to be more and more apparent to us, you look around, you realize that we have an entire thneed society, like we You know, you alluded at the top of the interview, um, my op-ed that I did with Carl Safina about needing an infrastructure for nature. Well, we have this old ancient infrastructure that we no longer need. If we're going to truly work from home, if we're truly going to online shop, why do we need to rebuild the crumbling roads? Why do we need to have, you know, all this infrastructure in place when making it go away and letting it go away might be the best thing for us and for the planet?
0: Oh finally, um we've we you, you've mentioned having kids or not having kids. You've mentioned you've got kids, I've got kids, most people here uh watching this probably will have children. What about the generational um element to this? Because I know that the environment seems to be a, 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 a particularly um attractive, seductive um ideology or movement or or, or feeling amongst young people. We had the Excellent young uh, anti-plastic activist, um, Hannah Tester, on the show last year. Great. She has a rule of, of five hours, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. Um, is there something generational about this? Your book, in some ways, seems to be more directed towards y- you and my generation, homeowners, parents, rather than young people. Um, is there another book for young people here? Um, I think that
1: this book was meant to unite the generations to some degree. I think that a lot of youth and young people are getting this information from the internet and from, you know, people like Greta Thunberg and all these kind of, you know, younger right. inspirational people. What but, you think um, of that,
0: by the way, Greta, do you like her, or is she uh, is she a bit of a <laughs> Laura?
1: No, I mean, I think she's great. I mean, you know, it's like she's speaking, you know, there's no greater symbol of truth to power than this small young girl, you know, really talking straight to these people who mostly just prevaricate. You know, I've, I, it's just astounding and amazing to me to watch her, um, you know, really look people in the eye and say, no, you know, what you're doing is basically lying and prevaricating. So, yes, bring on more Greta Thunbergs. Um, there is one thing I want to say about the generational divide. It's funny because I uh, when I teach university and um, one of my students... You're like at NYU, recently, NYU, right?
0: My son yeah, just yeah. graduated from there.
1: Oh, congratulations. Um, so I contributed to
0: your wages, Paul. Imagine that.
1: Well, yeah, and I contributed to your debt. <laughs> so Thank you, from,
0: yeah. Thank you for reminding uh, me. That's, that's why I have to eat carrots.
1: That's right, exactly. It's It's good for you. Um, No, but one of my students said to me, told me this really interesting thing, she can no longer watch uh, movies from the 70s and 80s or from the 80s and 90s. And I said, why? And she said, well, because those people, those actors and everyone involved with that production had already been told the news that global warming was happening and they didn't do anything about it and when i watched the movie i'm thinking why are you in this stupid movie when you could be out in the streets stopping the climate crisis that's going to really affect my generation and that was like kind of a bitch slap like whoa that's really crazy and interesting and you know i think that i as a gen x type person I really admire this generation that's up and coming. I think they're tough, I think they're excited, I think they're motivated. And so anything that I can do to you know, smooth their message into my generation and generations above me is I feel that's what I wanna do. I mean, sort of like, you know, Bill McKibben in all his passages, in all his New York columns has a moment where he passes the mic to the other generation in his column. We all got to do that and we all got to feel like, you know, there is a lot of energy there and let's catalyze that energy and not stand in its way.
0: Well, you've got the energy, Paul, not only as a speaker, but as a writer, author of many best-selling books. Your latest book, The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint is a must read. It's a very easy read, but full of, as you say, really important and interesting information. Uh, I can't believe you're still speaking to me having mangled your, your last name, uh, you are a Greenberg rather than any <laughs> oh, other sorry. bird. Um, That's you right. are talking I'm a Greenberg though, to save uh,
1: the icebergs.
0: You're a Greenberg to save the icebergs, which is good. Um, That's right. you're talking to me from your office at NYU, uh, in, uh, New York city, uh, early April, 2021, we're all stuck inside. As I said, people need to read your book, but what else should people be reading? Uh, so,
1: so I'm quite fond of of this book, um, "Becoming Wild" by my good friend Carl Safina. Um, it's a really terrific new book about the culture of wild animals and how animals actually do have culture and how they develop it and how they learn. It's a really beautiful book. And I, yeah, I a book. On
0: the show. I'm always uh, on, the, uh, not uh, Carl. I'm mixing up my Carl's and my Pauls. Carl was on the show last year talking about that book. It's a wonderful read. Well, keep yeah. well. Keep Well, uh, Paul, Um, continue to remind people of their responsibility to save the environment without becoming Buddhists and annoying people. Let's not shame (laughs) others and let's not shame certainly the the poor or the um, the powerless. Uh, Good job with the book. Keep well. And uh, next time you come on the show, I will not get your name wrong. Thank you so much. (laughs) My pleasure. Take care.